0: Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to this online service from First Baptist Church in Rock Hill. I'm Pastor Steve Hogg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. Recently, we had done Sunshine lead training here at our church, helping people uh, understand how just to just have everyday natural conversations with people about Jesus and about God and a relationship with him. Also, he preached in our three morning services and was such an encouragement to us. We want to share his message with you because I believe you will be encouraged as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus as well. So I'm going to pray, and then you'll hear that encouraging message from Brother Don Sunshine. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege that is ours to know you, to love you, to serve you, to obey you. We thank you for the joy that is ours to, to worship you. And I pray, wherever anyone is listening or watching this sermon today, that your Holy Spirit ministers encouragement and direction to their heart as Brother Don preaches. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, good morning, Rock Hills. Good to be back. Good to see all of you today. I always start out by talking about my last name because everyone's know, curious about the last name, Sunshine. Is it really your last name? My grandfather was an Orthodox Jew in Germany in the early 1900s. His name was Chaim Sonnenschein. And Chaim, is kind of hard to say, went to Oxford University in England to get a degree. And as he was graduating, they said, Chaim, what are your plans for the future? He said, well, I have a sponsor. I'm going to emigrate to America. They said, if you're going to go to America, you probably have an English-sounding name. Why don't we translate Chaim to Harry? And does Sonnenschein mean something in English? He said, well, if you translate directly, it means sunshine. They said, what a cool name. Call yourself Harry Sunshine. So for me, it was a great name when I was in sales, because we you're in sales, you want people to remember your name. But sometimes, even even with a simple name like Sunshine, somebody somebody's not going to get it. Worked at this little computer store in northern New Jersey in the early 1980s. I was walking behind the receptionist, her name was Jane, and her say, hold on, and she put the phone down and burst out laughing, and she yells, Don, Don, I said, Jane, you don't need to yell, right behind you. She said, I think this phone calls for you. I said, what do you mean you think? She said, well, I asked for Mr. Sunrise, I said, don't anybody hear by that name. And they said, how about Moonshine? And she goes, no, no, but I know who you need to speak with. Now, prior to that, though, I was a police officer. Let me turn this on. I was a police officer on a SWAT team in New Jersey. And trust me, it wasn't a good name for a cop. Officer Sunshine. (laughs) Cartoon character, superhero, big-headed bicycle safety guy that goes into kindergarten classes, (laughs) something. Anyway, one of the things I like to do is I like to ride motorcycles. And this is a picture of one of my previous motorcycles. And for some reason, it kind of looked like a police bike and I had a white helmet with a coil cord and a microphone I was driving up from Jupiter, Florida did a mad training down there on my way up to Daytona to share my faith with the bikers in Daytona and I'm cruising up 95 in the right lane minding my own business and I look at my left mirror and there's a car coming seems like 100 miles an hour up the middle lane and as it got close the whole front end dipped down because the driver slammed on the brakes and these two guys are checking me out trying to figure out if it's safe to pass this guy the passenger goes go up a little more and he's looking at me over real close he goes no he's okay and off they went I was in Cooperstown, New York with five pastor friends, and one of them missed a turn. So I pulled off on the side of the road to wait. A man pulls up in his Chevy Suburban, rolls his window down, and says, Excuse me, officer. Is it okay to park here if I want to fish in the lake? I said, I'm not a cop, and I'm not from New York. He goes, Really, you look like one. People would repeatedly stop and ask for directions when I was in parking lots, and I started to see a pattern here, and I thought, I'm going to have some fun with this. Borrowed Kathy's hair dryer, parked myself out on a road someplace, and you know what happens? Yeah, kind of like that. Anyway, this training that I do is recommended and endorsed by the Light FM. I do trainings with them every year every January, the Journey FM, KSBJ in Houston, a whole bunch of radio stations. And the question comes up, one of my qualifications for teaching this, because whenever you have a guy comes and speak, you want to know, how much education does he have and where do you get his degrees from? So the question comes up: Am I ordained? <coughs> oh, that one. Uh, seminary degree? <coughs> Bible college degree? <coughs> Mm-mm. I' got an associate degree in management. <laughs> I'm just living proof that you don't have to have a whole bunch of specialized degrees to be able to be obedient to Christ's command to go and make disciples, which begins with you telling someone about him. So here's a question. How would your life change if every day, without fear, without embarrassment, you could naturally, easily share your faith in Christ with one person? What about if on some days it was two people? What about if on some days it was five or more? It is a whole lot easier to do than you think. Um, we are to develop a lifestyle evangelism, telling of his righteousness all day long. Personal witnessing comes from the overflow of our lives and is to be a daily exercise as we share Christ in the normal pursuits of our lives. So to accomplish this, we're going to do three parts. Number one, how do I recognize the opportunities that God gives me every day as a follower of Jesus Christ to tell someone about him, but I miss them? And what does it really mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Secondly, we're going to list every single fear that you as the audience can come up with that keeps you from sharing your faith. And I'll show you how to beat those fears because that's what stops all of us in our tracks. And I know how to beat the fears. And I've done this 706 times in 36 states. And I've seen God change lives every time we do it. And lastly, what does it look like when a door opens for me to tell someone about Jesus and what do I do and say? So... Everyone here should have handouts. It's only one page right now. The rest is coming this afternoon. And if you have OCD, even one page is making you freak out because there's all these blanks that need to be filled in. What do I do? Simple instructions. Anytime you see something on the screen that's in yellow and it's all capitalized and it's underlined, those three things together, it's a clue it goes on your paper. So if you follow those instructions of all the blanks filled in, great resource to refer back to when we're done. Audience participation. I will ask you simple questions like where do you live. Now, if that freaks you out, you got issues to deal with, okay? And then I have more formal ones that are usually tied to a video or a picture, and I call that audience participation time. Now, when I built this training, I was a youth action director at a parachurch organization in the Finger Lakes in New York called Family Life. We had 70 Christian radio stations that covered the southern tier of New York, northern tier of Pennsylvania, and a young morning show producer, a young guy named Tim, took my training twice, and after the second time, he said, Don. I know you're still building this training. May I make a suggestion to approve it? I said, sure, Tim, go ahead. He said, you know when you have those spinning letters and it says audience participation time, there's dead silence. I need music to go with it. I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. He said, well, I already did some research. I got a couple samples. I'll play them for you. If you like them, you can use them. He played me the first one. It's absolutely horrible. I'm not going to use that, Tim. Played me the second one. I just kind of looked at him. And he said, Don, I know it's cheesy, but it's so cheesy it's funny you got to use it. So I've been using it ever since. So when you hear the cheesy mu- music play, get ready to participate. Here we go, first fill in the blank. You were created by God and left on planet earth after you came to faith in Christ to go mad. That doesn't mean crazy or insane or angry, it means God left you here to make a difference. And there's all kinds of differences that we can make in people's lives, but without a doubt, the biggest difference you can ever make is to take someone to heaven with you. And if you haven't been used yet by the God of the universe to change someone's eternal address, you don't know what you're missing because it energizes your entire Christian experience and sharing your faith in Christ every day as a lifestyle puts you in a situation where you're experiencing the greatest adventure there is on planet Earth and most of us never get to experience it. So I'm going to ask you to do when we're done here is take a risk today. Now this isn't a big risk. I teach the exact same training in Christian middle schools and high schools. I have the testimonies of the parents of two seven-year-olds who sat there just training on a Sunday morning. One is a little guy named Lincoln in Port St. Lucie, Florida came home from the training he said, Mom, Dad, the Holy Spirit's telling me to share Jesus with Mr. so across the street. They say, okay, Lincoln, you go, we'll pray for you. The other seven-year-old is leading friends to Christ on the public school bus and a family is buying Bibles, children's Bibles every week to give to these new young believers. There's a 10-year-old at the Valley Forge Baptist Temple, took the training in his school, took it again in his church. He used his allowance to buy 30 Gospels of John, had his aunt, who's a missionary at home on furlough, take him to the train station because he felt compelled to share the Gospel with commuters he didn't come home till he shared the gospel with 30 people. Okay, so we think this is hard. It really isn't that hard. Now, who knows what this is? Titanic. Yeah, I was in a church in upstate New York a bunch of years ago. I had about 45 people in a room, and no one knew what this was. That's pretty unusual. So I was like, "Come on, folks. Nobody knows what this is." And the guy in the back of the room kind of sheepishly goes, "A boat." <laughs> so yeah, boat. Most famous boat of all time, launched and sunk over 100 years ago, allegedly unsinkable. When Captain Smith struck the iceberg, he knew he had more lifeboats than required by law. But if he filled every single lifeboat to capacity, he knew that there was at least 1,000 people who were gonna die that night and there was nothing he could do to save them. So he gives the order women and children first. If you were a 15-year-old boy or older, you weren't even allowed in a lifeboat because you were considered to be a man. And compounding the problem was they never practiced lifeboat drills. So the end result is almost every single lifeboat was launched less than half full. I read reports from people who were in lifeboats that could have held 40 people that they launched with 12 people in it. So imagine, you're one of the lucky few gets put into a lifeboat. You're loaded onto a very calm North Atlantic. There's a mate assigned to your boat. He says, okay everyone, grab your oars and start rowing. You start rowing away. You naturally coast to a stop and you do a little math and say, hey listen pal, I don't want to be rude or anything, but there's 28 free seats in our lifeboat. We left my husband on that ship. We left my 16-year-old son on that ship, my best friend. Why can't we go back and get them? We could still rescue 25 more people. He said, we're not going back, keep rowing. And they rowed further away. And then the nightmare of nightmares unfolds. As this gigantic ship fills with water, the stern comes up out of the water pretty much like you saw in the movie. People were sliding down the decks, they were bouncing off of things in the water, and recent computer simulations based on the architecture of the ship indicate when it got to about 38 degrees, it couldn't take the water pressure. And you hear the deafening sound of water pressure ripping this gigantic ship in half. I think if you plugged your fingers in your ears, it was still painfully loud. This gigantic ship disappears below the surface in two pieces as if it had never existed, and 328 people survived the sinking of the ship, and they are very much alive in the 28-degree saltwater. But they're not going to be alive for very long unless someone cares enough to come back for them, and they are screaming, begging the people with all those free seats in the lifeboats to come back for them. one lifeboat went back and rescued six people. So 322 people are are in the water, and they're not going to be alive for very long unless someone cares enough to come back for them. Imagine sitting in a lifeboat with 28 free seats, and right out here are these people that are begging you to come back for them, because they're freezing. And you just sit there with your hands in your lap. Then it starts getting quiet, because people are dying 15, 75, 200 at a time. Then there's that one last voice that's holding out, and when that last voice is silenced, Hard the pun, but there's dead silence on the water, and you're left with your thoughts. Reportedly, no one said anything all night to each other in the lifeboats. Early next morning, a ship called the Carpathia comes. They rescue everyone who's in lifeboats and retrieve as many frozen bodies they can find floating in the North Atlantic. They give you a stateroom and a change of clothes, and you get to take a hot shower to warm up, and then you have to stand in front of a mirror and look yourself in the eyes. How do you feel knowing you did absolutely nothing? You had all those free seats in your lifeboat? Reportedly, a number of people committed suicide and left notes saying, I just can't live with the guilt of what I did do. And the rest of them probably had nightmares for the rest of their lives. I mean, how do you live with yourself knowing you did absolutely nothing? And you could have done something. Sadly, that's a picture of the church in America today. Those of us who know Jesus Christ, we are safe and secure in God's eternal lifeboats. And he's placed each and every one of us in a sea of lost and dying people. They're not screaming. Most of them don't even know they're lost. And we're not going back for them because we're content to have lifeboat parties with everyone who's already saved. We've got fellowship dinners and small groups and Sunday school picnics and and Bible studies. Nothing wrong with those things. What about those people that God has placed in our lives? We all have lost friends, relatives, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, people we meet at the store, and we're not going back for them. See, we have a bad definition of evangelism because the devil's a very good liar. And what he did is he said, don't invite them into your lifeboat because they're probably not going to come in. Then you're going to feel like a failure. Or they're going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. All kinds of reasons that are just lies from the pit of hell. And all God expects us to do, it's so simple, is just say, hey, listen, pal, I care about you. If you stay where you are, you're going to die. Why don't you climb in the lifeboat with me? Here's how you can get in. And if you just do that, you're 100% successful. Leave all the results to God. It takes all the pressure off. So a better definition of evangelism is probably successful evangelism is simply taking the initiative to share Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving all the results to God. It takes all the pressure off of us. Chuck Swindoll said, we are not the Holy Spirit. God doesn't expect us to win souls for Christ. Without the mercy and movement of God's Spirit, no one can muster the faith to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. We are completely incapable of managing hearers' responses to God's message. All we can do is share the hope of life through belief in Jesus Christ. The worst thing we could do is to hide our hope from those who languish in despair. We must allow compassion to compel us to obediently share the gospel with others. See, it's not our job to convince people. It's not our job to convict people. It's not our job to convert people, and it's not our job to save people. It's our job to tell people. And that's all God expects us to do The convincing, convicting, converting, and saving is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And we get to leave all that in God's hands, which makes it very, very simple to do. So here's a tough question. How many people have you personally cared enough about that you went back for them in the past year and invited them into your lifeboat? Come up with a number. How about in the past two years, how many people? How about in the past five or more years? A lot of us are thinking really small numbers, and that needs to change. Because if we look at why Jesus came... The scripture says there's one reason he traded a throne in heaven for a Roman cross. He came to seek and to save what's lost. And if I put my hand up and say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what my master did, it's exactly what I should be doing, yet we're not doing it. We're being disobedient. Statistics say that 9 out of 10 of us who profess to follow Christ never share a faith with anyone. Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. But again, there's a huge disconnect in the church in America today. I love David Platt's book, Follow Me. He said, disciples of Jesus can't help but make disciples of all nations. If we truly believe Jesus' words and we know Jesus' worth, then we are compelled to be part of this task. Following Jesus necessitates believing Jesus. And believing Jesus, I'll add, will naturally lead to proclaiming Jesus. Consequently, a privatized faith in a resurrected Christ is practically inconceivable. Yet privatized Christianity is a curse across our culture and church today. You know, we all know the passage that gives us the great commission. It's probably more accurately called the great omission or the great suggestion because very few professing followers of Jesus Christ in the United States are actively involved in fulfilling that commission. Scripture says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. David Jeremiah said, disciples are made when new believers are taught the word, led by example, and then trained to transfer the faith to others. That's what we're all commanded to do. But it begins with us telling someone about him. In other words, help a new believer become a learner, a follower, and a reproducer. Listen carefully to this question. Do you really believe that if Jesus commanded his followers down through the centuries, which probably includes all of us, to go and make disciples, which begins with you telling someone about your faith in him, and you choose to ignore that your whole life, then when you finally stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. When we've been downright disobedient on a major command that he's given us. I think not. So I can help with that. But we're going to look at a biblical picture of how to make this eternal difference. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Moses. He lived in a really bad place called the desert. You ever been there? Not nice. Really hot. A lot of sand. Very few things growing. And we have this awesome, creative God who has a sense of humor. I made mean, him made a donkey talk. So instead of sending an angel to flutter on down and talk to Moses, what's he do? He creates the one and only butane bush. He's got this thing engulfed in flames. Moses looks at it, didn't see a man run off with a torch in his hand. Lightning didn't crash. He goes over to check it out. He sees now it's engulfed in the flames, but there's no consuming of the the bush, which is really unusual. So out of that burning butane bush, God says something really important to Moses. He said, Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And Moses starts to get excited. God says, I've heard them crying out, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And he's getting more and more excited. And then God says something that sends Moses into absolute elation. He says, so I have come down to rescue them. And Moses is jumping for joy in his head. And God continues, and now the cry of the Israelites says, reach me. So now go, I am sending you, Moses. At this point, Moses' elation bubble bursts. He goes, hold on, Lord, hold on. Uh, I know I heard you say you were coming down to rescue him. What's that got to do with me? God, obviously, you have no idea who I am. I stutter when I speak. I'm not a leader. He gave all kinds of reasons why he couldn't do it. And God said, no, Moses, I know exactly who you are, and I am coming down to rescue my people, so now go, I am sending you. I think it's really cool that as you read through the Scriptures, you see that our amazing, creative, loving God most often chooses all of the flawed, regular, everyday people who accomplish great things for him. And in the same way that back then, he wanted to rescue his chosen people, the Jews, so he sent Moses to do it. He'd like to rescue some people in and around Rock Hill, South Carolina. So he's going to send you folks to do it. See, God has seen all of the lost people in your life. Again, their friends, their relatives, their neighbors, their co-workers. And he's summoning each of us to join him in a rescue mission to save their lives. Christians are scared to death of the term witnessing. When someone hears there's evangelism training on Saturday and they look at their calendar and it's totally blank, they will panic and call the dentist and beg for a root canal because they'd much rather sit there getting... than come here and sit and hear how to learn how to share their faith. So we don't use that term anymore. There's an equally biblical concept, that of being a spiritual rescuer. So our theme today is going to be rescuing people for eternity. I want you to start to see yourselves as spiritual rescuers. So this is an example of how not to do this. I am the world. I'm a Christian. What you got there, Christian? Oh, this this wouldn't interest you. No, I'm interested. No, no, trust me, this isn't your type of thing, all right? Try me. Look, I've seen it all before, okay? I know your types. You all living in your own little worlds, waiting for the next big indulgence, cranked up on sin, seething with fast car envy, curvy girl crazy, rolling over, sleeping over, and you're begging me to let you in on this little gym? (laughs) Think again, friend. This is the Bible, and it says you're not welcome here. Well, Christian... I have a Bible. Exactly. That's what I was trying. You, you have one of these? Everybody's got a Bible. It sits there right on the shelf at home. In fact, doesn't the main character in that book hang out with people like me? Oh, that's 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 really funny. That that's good. You you you're funny. You're a comedian. You should. You're a funny guy, Mr. Funny Guy. That that's good. Doesn't he? I see we are going with this, and I'm saying you're funny. That's really funny. You're a funny funny guy. <laughs> I mean, doesn't he? Okay. Well. Yeah okay agree to disagree
2: but you agreed with me
1: right agree to disagree i think that's the definition of double talk <laughs> i warned you first official audience participation time and you know who the smart ones are in the room you're pointing at her but but you know what i saw i saw your hand move what, what's your name chloe, chloe thanks for volunteering Yay. something similar happened in the previous service a young guy went to scratch his nose and went oh no i moved and they went like this too late i got them anyway chloe i've asked this question 706 times 22 people got it on the question it's not good news and i can tell you it happened before you were born which makes it a little harder But I've got three clues to help, and everybody can help Chloe. Okay, so you ready? Okay, here's your question. Who is Lenny Skutnik? No idea? I don't think she knows. You know what comes up a lot? Wasn't he the guy that went into outer space? That was Sputnik. That was a machine. The other one comes up is Laverne and Shirley. No, that was Lenny and Squiggy, two different people. Anyway, here's your first clue. Anybody know where this is? Potomac River, you guys are good. That happened in the other service as well. What happened on the Potomac? January 13, 1982, Ronald Reagan is president. Air Florida Flight 90 is at National Airport, which we now call Reagan International, full of vacationers headed for Tampa. They're in a raging blizzard. Feet of snow have fallen on the D.C. area, so they closed the airport. But they had this one plane away from the gate, and they said rather than try to drag the plane back through the snow to the gate, Let's get them out of here. So they brought out the de-icing trucks. They de-iced the plane, but they de-iced the plane before they had finished clearing the runway. So while they waited for the runway to be cleared, more snow fell on the plane. The snow turned to ice. Snow built up on top of the ice, and when they had the final clearance to take off, they went right up the Potomac River. The pilot and the co-pilot were pulling on the control as hard as they could. The plane was shaking violently, and they couldn't get enough lift to clear the 14th Street Bridge. So they slammed into the bridge during rush hour, crushed a bunch of vehicles, the plane plane went across, dropped onto the frozen Potomac River, when it hit the ice, it broke into three pieces and sunk to the bottom. And of everyone on the plane, there were only six survivors, four were female flight attendants, two were male passengers. They bobbed to the surface between the chunks of ice in 33 degree water. Everyone who saw the plane crash, including Lenny Skutnik, stopped their cars, ran to the side of the river, ran to the side of the bridge to see what was happening, and here's what happened.
2: Stunned witnesses gather on the bridge. A news cameraman takes this footage just minutes later. The entire 737 bar, the tail section, has disappeared. The emergency services arrive minutes later. But their inflatable boats can't get through the ice. 28-year-old Lenny Skutnik arrives at the crash scene. Lenny spotted the commotion while driving home from his office job in the center of Washington. He's unnerved by what he finds. When we got down on the riverbank, it was um, kind of an eerie feeling. It was snowing, you know, that that quiet when it snows. And someone screaming for help out in the, the river made the hair stand up in the back of your head. Priscilla is their immediate priority. After 30 minutes in the freezing water, her chances of survival are on a knife edge. Lenny Skutnik is horrified as he watches from the shoreline. She was close enough where you could see the expression on her face. And her eyes just looked wild, and she looked like she was going into shock then. Time and again, Priscilla slips from the life ring. Traumatized, exhausted, and temporarily blinded by aviation fuel, she begins to drown. Lenny realizes he can watch no more. It was just too much to take. I absolutely thought she was going to die if I didn't go in and get her. He jumps into the freezing water and drags Priscilla to save him. I believe it's a human instinct. I didn't weigh it or think about it, I just did it.
1: Well, if it was a human instinct, why weren't there lots of splashes? There was only one. That footage was shown on every TV station in America, and two weeks later, Ronald Reagan was giving the State of the Union address, and he did something that no U.S. president in history had ever done.
2: Just just two weeks ago, in the midst of a terrible tragedy on the Potomac, we saw again the spirit of American heroism at its finest. The heroism of dedicated rescue workers saving crash victims from icy waters. And we saw the heroism of one of our young government employees, Lenny Scudney, who, when he saw a woman lose her grip on the helicopter line, dived into the water and dragged her to safety.
1: And that started a tradition that continues today Whenever U.S. president since Ronald Reagan and Lenny Skutnik would have everyday heroes in the gallery, and the president will tell their story and have them recognized by Congress. In fact, the name stuck. They call those everyday heroes recognized at the State of the Union address, the Skutniks today. And the reason we tell this story is because everyday people like Lenny Skutnik and like you and me can become a hero when we become a rescuer. How would you like to be a hero in God's eyes? It says in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. How cool is that? Sounds like something we should all be aspiring to. (laughs) Excuse me. So what I'd like you to do is think of someone who's in your life, who you care about or you love, and you know they're not going to heaven and you'd really like to take them with you. Just write their name down. I'm sure the Holy Spirit will lay somebody on your heart. We're not going to ask you to share this, but from this point on, everything we do, hopefully is going to equip you to rescue that person for eternity. So what we're going to talk about today is how do I rescue people for eternity? The first way is recognize why you are where you are. Recognize why you are where you are. I love it. Okay, um, let me start. Ma'am, where do you live? What street in town? Okay, why do you live on Stony Ridge Court in Rock Hill, South Carolina? We bought a house. Good answer. Good. Okay, who here works? Anybody still working, not staying at home? Where do you work, ma'am? I work at the Children's, Hospital Children's Hospital in Columbia. Cool. Why do you work there? A You're a pharmacist? Okay. But why there? I love it and pays bills. Uh, you love it it pays the bills. That's a good answer. Yeah. Okay, recreation. Who likes to do stuff for fun? Chloe, what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> you can answer this one. Volleyball, awesome, why? It energizes her and keeps her busy, very good. Now, if I were to ask this question again, after we finish point number one, we're all going to give exactly the same answer. How's that possible? Let's go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament was a woman named Esther. She was a what? Queen. She was also a Jew. You guys are good. A queen and a Jew. There was a bad guy in the story whose name was Haman. He hated the Jews, Was it, you know wanted to get a proclamation issued that was going to end up in the death of all the Jews, and he especially hated this one Jew who wouldn't bow down to him. His name was Mordecai. So Haman gets his word for the king, goes home for lunch, big party being thrown in his honor. He's not enjoying any of it. He's seething with anger. They go, Haman, what's your problem? Everything's going so good. He goes, sorry, can't enjoy any of this because that guy Mordecai won't bow down when I go by. He's the only one in the kingdom that violates the law. Hey, okay, so all well, Haman, hey, if you hate the guy that much, why don't you hire a local contractor? Have him install an eight-story-high impaling pole. We'll kidnap Mordecai, take him up to the top of the scaffold on the count of three. We'll pick him up by his hands and feet, slam his body down in the impaling pole. Would that make your day? He said, yeah, that would do it. Um, word gets around and Mordecai's not real excited. He sends a note to his relative Esther, who's the queen of Persia, and he says, Esther, you've got to do something. This crazy guy, Haman, wants to kill all the Jews. That includes us. He's got this really bad plan for me. He wants to impale me on a polo's front lawn. You're the queen. Do something about it. She said, Mordecai, i love to, but it's not that simple. You can't just stroll out in front of the king anytime you want. They have guards and spears there. But they've been trying to run you through if you show up without being summoned. And the king hasn't summoned me in 30 days. He said, well, this is life and death. What are we going to do? She said, here's what I think we should do. Let's get all the Jews who are in exile with us to fast and pray for three days. At the end of three days, even if it means I'm going to die, I will go see the king. They fast and pray for three days. Esther puts on her royal robes, goes out to the edge of the king's court, and I think her heart was beaten out of her chest because it could be over like that. She steps out where the king can see her. He says, "Queen Esther, what a great surprise! Come up here, touch my golden scepter, sit on the throne next to me." Over a couple of days and some lunches and some maneuvering, she's able to turn the tables on Haman, so the Jews are spared and Haman gets impaled on his own impaling pole on his front lawn. How cool is that? And what does the Bible say about Esther? And who knows, Esther, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? We can't comprehend an omniscient God who knows everything before it's going to happen, but that's who he is. Which means that even before he formed Adam and Eve, he knew that at some point in the future his chosen people, the Jews, were going to be in serious danger because of a nutcase named Haman. So he had to strategically place a person in that place for that time to rescue them. The Bible says God never changes, so the application to you and me is we are just like Esther. He's divinely positioned us where we live, where we work, where we recreate, who we sit next to on an airplane, who we have a simple conversation with at Walmart. These are all divine appointments by a sovereign God, and when you recognize why you are where you are, you're going to see opportunities every single day.
3: You think about about where you live right now. You are not in that neighborhood or that apartment complex by accident. God is sovereign over everything, including the details of your lives. He has the whole thing rigged. And He has put you in that neighborhood and that apartment complex for a reason. There are people who are spiritually dead all around you. Why are you in that workplace? There are people who are spiritually dead all around you. Why are you in that city? There's people who are spiritually dead all around you. So how will they come to life? They'll come to life when servants of God, children of God, filled with His Spirit, with His Word, are bold enough, desperate enough to step out and speak this Word to one of those people. And trust that that Word, not because of your ingenuity or your creativity and presentation of it, but because of the power inherent in it.
1: Let me illustrate. This is me, Pastor Ron in the middle, and and, uh, Jim on the side there. We're inside the sphere of death outside the Harley-Davidson Pavilion during Bike Week. And what I learned about Florida, those of you that have been there, you can agree with me, they do have the longest traffic lights on planet Earth. I I mean, if you catch one of those lights in the wrong county, uh, I think they they determine when they're going to change using a calendar instead of a clock. Uh, you might as well just park the car, just go have a little lunch, do a little shopping, come on back with something to read, it'll still be red when you get back. These guys have a different idea, they have the same problem, but they handle it a little differently. Um, but we caught one of these lights, and I'm in the right lane, Ron is next to me, next to the shoulder, Jim is directly behind me. I look in my mirrors, make sure I'm not going to get rear-ended by somebody not paying attention, put the motorcycle in neutral, and now I'm just going to relax and wait for who knows how long. So I look at the vehicle in front of me, it's a Ford Explorer and it's gas cap is hanging out, but they closed the door without screwing the cap in. So I thought for a second, put the motorcycle in gear, pulled to the left, drove down the dotted line. I stopped on her, wrapped on the lady's window in traffic. Well, she kind of jumped, didn't expect that. She rolls the window down and says, yes, can I help you? I said, ma'am, do you realize that your gas cap is hanging out? She said, no, I just filled it up. Didn't I screw it in? I said, no, all you did was close the door. That's not going to keep the gas in the tank. For safety reasons, and because I thought you'd like to keep what you just paid for so it doesn't slosh out, cap needs to be screwed in. If it's okay with you, I'm already out here. I'll screw it in for you. She said, that'd be great. Thank you. I backed the motorcycle up, opened the door, screwed the cap in, closed the door. I pulled forward. She said, thank you so much. I said, no problem. Hey, when you die, do you want to go to heaven? She looks at me and goes, yeah, I do. I said, do you know how to get to heaven? She goes, no. I said, can I share with you how you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? She goes, you know that? I said, yeah, I do. She said, tell me. Reached in my cargo pocket, pulled out a gospel of John with a plan of salvation in it, invited her into my lifeboat. I said, listen, I'd like to give this little book to you as a gift. You may be able to read through this whole thing a couple times before that light turns. But if for some reason you can't, will you take it home and read it? She said, I promise I will, because I definitely want to go to heaven when I die. I said, great, there you go. I backed the motorcycle up, and Pastor Ron is laying on his gas tank laughing. He looks at me, and goes, okay, sunshine, I saw you sharing the gospel with that woman. How in the world did you start the conversation? I said, Ron, she left her gas cap off. He said, wait a minute, what are the chances that this woman's going to leave her gas cap off? That God's going to put you in the only place in traffic that you could see it because I couldn't see it. I asked Jim. He had no idea what you were doing. And no offense, Don, but you're going to be smart enough to use that as an open door to share your faith with this woman. I said, Ron, cool stuff like this happens to me every day. He said, You see things that I don't see. I said, Listen, the only difference between me and you is I've been doing this as a lifestyle for nine years. You keep your eyes open. You're going to see this stuff like this too. God has a sense of humor. And, and he will do amazing things to connect you with someone who is ready to listen. If you are willing to share, he may even put a goat on your front porch. When I lived in the Finger Lakes in New York, I lived in what I call the middle of stinking nowhere. It was 45 minutes by highway to get to the nearest Walmart or decent grocery store. So once a week, Kathy and I had date night to go grocery shopping because it was an hour and a half commute out and back. Came home from the ministry this one day and she said, Don, I'm not feeling so good. Can we go shopping tomorrow? I said, yeah, that's fine. I'm sure there's something to eat in the house. She goes in the living room and sits down. I go around the corner to the home office, and all of a sudden I hear this, Don, I said, yeah, hon. She said, why is there a goat standing on our front porch looking in the window at me? I went, whoa, (laughs) she really isn't feeling well today. (laughs) So I came around the bend and this is what I saw. So I grabbed a camera, snapped the picture. She said, please, you know how we live on Route 53 and the tractor trailers go whizzing down this road? I just know that that poor little goat is going to get hit right in front of our house. Our living room is all glass. It's an A-frame with a beautiful view of the valley. And I'm going to see vultures coming down on this thing and gathering around it and ripping it apart. I don't want to see that. You need to catch the goat. Sure, hon. I'm raised in suburban New Jersey not a city kid, not a farm kid I know I can't outrun four legs so I'm like, I would to be able to outwit this goat I'm an eagle scout, I ought to make some knots I figure I would get the goat go down to the basement, find a brand new coil of 100 feet of rope come out the door behind the goat and she scampers down the steps and turns around and looks at me took out my knife, cut the zip ties plastic make a little slip knot lasso I'm like, come here little goat, come here and she's kind of cautiously coming in trying to see what's in my hand, you know, stiff what's in my hand and I whip the rope at her, hit her right in the head she backed up Three times I did this, three times the same result. I'm no cowboy. So now the goat has me figured out. This dude has nothing to eat, and every time I walk up to him, he whacks me in the head with something. I said, Kathy, get on the phone call Carmen. Carmen was our next door neighbor, so far away you couldn't even see him, but he was raised on a farm in Shingle House, Pennsylvania. He was on the radio from nine to 12 at night. I figure he's gotta know how to catch a goat. Kathy calls his wife, and Vicky answers the phone. She doesn't believe there's a goat on the porch. She hands the phone to Carmen, he doesn't believe there's a goat on the porch. Kathy gets frustrated. She said, talk to Don, please. I grabbed the phone. I said, Carmen, just tell me how to catch a goat. He said, Don, is there really a goat on your front porch right now? Are you pulling my leg? I said, no, she's standing on the front lawn looking at me. He said, well, you know I was raised on a farm. I said, I know. I know a lot about animals. I said, I know. He said, do exactly as I tell you what to do. I said, go ahead. He said, put a rope around her neck. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's not as easy as one might think, Carmen. So he goes, I'll be over to help. So I go outside, the goat's farther across the lawn, I pick up the rope, she won't even come to me now because she's been hit in the head three times. So I go inside, come out with an apple, cut a chunk of apple and I pitched it out to her. I worked her all the way in with chunks of apple till she was almost close enough, cut one piece, threw it down, I'm like, go for it. She looks at the apple, looks up at me and goes, and and backs up. And I said, okay, I'm going inside, I'm gonna make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because now I'm hungry. I came out, took a chunk of the apple, pitched it out to her, she wouldn't even eat the apple. And I thought, what can it hurt? Maybe the goat likes peanut butter and jelly. Here's my tip of the day. If you ever need to catch a pygmy goat, just start with PB&J. It is like goat cocaine, okay? I took a chunk of that thing, I pitched it out to her, and she came hopping in like this, you know? I just held a noose out, pulled the sandwich through the noose, and I had her. Now, as soon as the noose cinched around her neck, I learned something about her. She had never had a rope around her neck before. Scared the daylights out of her. She took off running from zero to 40 miles an hour in about three seconds, and I'm not fast enough to understand what was going on, I'm holding the end of the 100-foot piece of rope. And she gets the end of the rope at full tilt. Her legs flat from under her. My shoulder goes like this. I'm going across the lawn like this. Carmen is walking over, doubled over laughing. In church on Sunday before he preached, he said, Folks, till the day I die, I will never forget the sight of that little goat trying to rip Don's shoulder out of his body. He said, Don, that's an auction tag from the bath auction. The auction was yesterday. That goat must have fallen off a truck. Looks like you got yourself a pet. I said, No, I don't. Carmen, look around my front lawn. I have no idea how long she's been here for but there are piles of little brown presents all over my lawn he said what are you going to do I said hold her I'm calling the cops I called the state police the sheriff the SPCA nobody knew anything I came out he goes how'd you make out I said not good he goes what are you going to do with her I said we can't let her go she will get killed there's an old doghouse out back from the previous owner of our home I know there's a cable and a clip there I've got an old dog collar in the basement from our dog Prince I'll put the collar on the goat clip her to the run give her a bowl of water and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich she'll be set for a little while the goat immediately goes in the doghouse and lays down and goes, aw, Don, look. She's already made herself at home. You can't, th- you can't give that goat away. I said, Carmen, she's not staying. Vicky hasn't said a word. She said all kinds of testimonies of me sharing my faith, and she's just standing there like this. She says, okay, Don, I'm still trying to figure out who you're going to get to share Jesus with as a result of this goat being on your porch. I said, Vicki, I don't know because we don't know who the owner is. A few minutes later, the phone rings. It's the New York State Police. Somebody reported their goat missing. They give her my phone number. The lady calls me. She said, we bought the goat yesterday at the bath auction for my two little boys. Put it in a totally enclosed pen my husband built last night. The kids hugged and kissed the goat goodnight. We put them to bed at 8.30. My husband and I checked on the goat at 11. She had already disappeared. We have no clue how she got out, but we're going to rename her Houdini. Could we come and get her now because my kids are brokenhearted and they're crying? I said, come on, I'll give you directions. She gets to my house and she said, Don, we live on the other side of the valley. I can't believe the goat got out. It didn't get eaten by bears or coyotes in the wilderness. It didn't get run over by a truck crossing Route 53. And why, out of all the places on planet Earth for our goat to go, would she come and stand on your front porch and wait for you to come home from work? I said, it's really easy to explain God like your goat right to my front porch. She said, why would God want to do that? I said, because he wants me to share something with you. Can I share it? She says, yeah, now I'm dying to find out what it is. Reached in my cargo pocket, pulled out a Gospel of John with the plan of salvation in it, and invited her into my lifeboat and invited her to church. See, here's what I think We miss as a group, okay, and individuals. I believe that every single person you meet has been handpicked by a sovereign God. And he's connecting us with people every single day and we don't even know why we had the conversations or why this happened. And we're just oblivious to it. These are all divine appointments by a sovereign God and when you recognize why you are where you are, you're gonna see opportunities every day to share your faith.